Hello and welcome to the 26th episode of Outside the Screen, a podcast all about screens in the lives of children and families. I'm law professor and child rights advocate Liz Hensley. And I'm child psychiatrist and stand-up comedian Dr Kim Lee. We're bringing you the podcast because we know just how hard it is to raise kids in a technology-centric world and we want to assist. What have we got lined up for today, Liz? Well, today on the show, you're going to hear a review of the Captain Underpants movie. And we'll zoom out later to have a look at how things are going with the UN's special statement from a couple of years ago about children's rights in the digital world. But first up, we've got... Paper Round, our regular segment where we look at the research that's coming out and really have a really microscopic look at it and inform your family's decisions about how you engage with screens. Today, we're discussing a paper by some Australian researchers about disordered screen use. So you want to find out just how much damage is being caused by excessive screen use and gaming? Stay tuned. As Kim said, today in Paper Round, we're looking at some research out of Australia. Macquarie University, to be precise, though one of the five researchers is at the Australian Catholic University, about disordered screen use. Full disclosure, one of the researchers is a good friend of ours, Wayne Warburton, but we're not the only ones who think he's great. We'll post a link in the show notes to a recent Australian story program from ABC TV about his efforts to help kids with gaming disorder. But getting back to the paper, Kim, the research is about neuropsychological defects. Uh, what are those and why did these researchers want to study them? Well, essentially defects associated with brain function. So doing lots of brain testing and surveys. And the researchers wanted to collate all the best research on these brain effects and how disordered use is ultimately affecting brain performance. Mm -hmm. So that already tells me a little bit about what their methodology was. They were collating other studies. Exactly. They found 43 papers via a systematic review looking at all the literature. And of those studies, they picked out 34 papers to include in their meta-analyses. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So basically, that's what it is. It's a meta-analysis. And for those who aren't already aware, that means you, you get a bunch of other studies together and you sort of collate everything and find some way of um, getting an overall picture from all of the studies that have been done. And it's quite a highly regarded uh, form of research because obviously it's sort of covering a range of different methodologies, different samples and so on. This study included cross-sectional studies comparing brain task performance between um, individuals with disordered screen use and healthy controls who did not have that disorder. Mm. Oh, good, yep. So, okay, what'd they find? The findings showed that individuals with disordered screen use had significantly lower brain performances, particularly in attention and executive functioning. Mm -hmm. Okay. And those are two things that are pretty important skills for life, aren't they? Being able to pay attention to things and um, having executive functioning, they're really important things to develop, yeah? Yeah, planning, regulating your emotions and making critical decisions. Mm. The significance of these findings was moderate, in indicating a reduction of almost half a standard deviation compared to normal controls. All right. With yeah. When I've heard the authors discuss their findings, they said it was uh, really important because it doesn't really matter if it's the internet use or gaming online or offline. If you don't do something about it, these effects snowball 
um, mm. if left with no intervention. So mm. they recommend remediation strategies uh, to prevent and reduce harms, to prevent further decline with brain performance, especially in the critical developmental ages like the teenage years. Hmm. Yeah, sure. Was there anything surprising about those findings? Does it fit in with what you already knew? We always knew that there was an effect on attention and critical areas of the frontal brain, hmm. but I've never really heard of this snowball effect before hmm. yep. this paper. Yeah, so just to go over that again, that's the idea that the, the longer you go with using screens at the level that you are if it's harming your your brain functioning then the more harm there's going to be from the use is that basically the idea yeah 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 okay so you don't just sort of reach a plateau and then it's all okay it just sort of keeps on going and going definitely and uh, i've seen those effects in adults who are in their now 30s and 40s who have continued to game and you know they're presented to hospital with medical complications so that does explain um those findings. What kind of medical complications are likely to come out there? You know, look, if you're not eating enough, you might collapse mm. or mm. you might um, suffer a medical episode or vitamin deficiencies. You, right, okay, you, yeah. Huh. You, know, you might be getting bed sores and things like that because you're just yeah. sitting down and not, or, or neck pain, lots of different types of mm. uh, injuries being sustained. Mm. Gee, wow. It's really a powerful force in our society, isn't it? It can be affecting people in all those different ways. Yeah, and, and not to mention, you know, the effects that it has on non-physical related things like relationships, work, mm -hmm. sleep, mood. Sure. Oh, it's really serious stuff if you think about it that way. <laughs> so do you have any reservations about the finding? The authors themselves were quite hard on themselves. They commented that they were not able to comprehensively cover all brain domains such as mm. memory, um, vision areas of the brain, language. Mm nor were they able to confidently examine different types of domains such as selective attention, divided attention, different hmm. types of attention, uh, nonverbal reasoning, decision-making and impulse control. Right. Nonverbal reasoning. I, I think I need some work on that too, actually. Okay. So um, obviously they're setting themselves up for lots of future research by noting all of those gaps in what they did, which is what researchers often do. Will all of this affect your practice as a psychiatrist? Sounds like it probably will. These findings are just as good as those pictures you see on the outside of cigarette packets. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they can be a little bit scary and confronting. Oh, I think it's just, you know, if you put a, uh, a brain scan in front of someone, they can see the differences between a normal brain and a brain that has had a lot of uh, damage done to it. Hmm. Yeah, well, so coming now to parenting and caring for children, uh, how can it inform that? Protect the brain at all costs yeah. and have a break. Yeah, having a break is something that uh, that you would recommend, that that's something that parents oh, can yeah, do. Definitely, um, yeah. you know, um, not having continuous marathons and having days off and scheduling mm. other activities, all yeah. those really common sense things people mm -hmm. take for granted. Yeah, I think those might be easier said than done in some circumstances, but it's yeah always worth trying. And at least if you know you're on the right track, if you're heading things in the right direction and you, you know the reasons why you're doing it, then um, that can at least give you some more motivation to keep trying and stick with it because it might be hard, but it's really, really important stuff, isn't it? Yeah. Okay, thanks for that. 
Well, there were a couple of pretty interesting tips from Kim about how to mediate the possible impact of uh, screen use on a child's growing brain. The paper was by Mikol Moschel and colleagues, and the title is Neuropsychological Defects in Disordered Screen Use Behaviours, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. It was published in the journal Neuropsychology Review, and full details are in the show notes. Now it's time for our movie review, and Patrick is going to tell us why Captain Underpants, the first epic movie, is recommended for children aged eight and up. Sounds like the kind of movie you might have liked when you were younger. Kim, what do you reckon? Uh, this was actually a little bit after my time. I'm aware there's a book, um, but I've never actually seen these. Uh... Yeah. Okay. Well, once you can grab a child eight or over, you can rush off and have a look at it. Hi, I'm Patrick Fung, and here with some information from the CNA review of Captain Underpants, the first epic movie. I'll tell you what the movie is about, and what elements led the reviewers to recommend it for children aged 8 and up, as well as some suggestions for things in the movie you might want to discuss with your kids. Captain Underpants the first epic movie is an animated movie about George and Harold, two best friends who attend the Jerome Horowitz Elementary School. The school is run by mean Mr. Crop, who believes in the most austere type of education. At school, George and Harold are continually getting into trouble for the pranks they play. And in the evenings, they hang out in George's treehouse writing comics about Captain Underpants. A dim-witted superhero flies around in just his underpants. When Crop threatens to permanently separate George and Harold, they have to come up with a plan. George uses a hypnotizing ring to turn Crop into Captain Underpants. And as a result, Jerome Horowitz now becomes a fun school with music, art, and a fun fair. Things are going well until the arrival of the evil Professor Boopypants, whose main aim is to rid the planet of laughter. The fight is then on between Captain Underpants, alternating as Crop and Boopypants. There's a lot of comic violence in this movie. Examples include some of George and Harold's pranks, such as making things explode and scaring other students with a tiger, George throwing darts at a picture of Crop, and Crop shooting a kitten. In one scene, robots are shooting each other. Then the giant turtle crashes through a wall, setting fire to everything with a laser beam in his eye. When Crop turns into Captain Underpants, he's hit by a car and punches a clown. Another example is where Professor Boopypants throws around an axe, a mace, and a chainsaw. In addition to the violent scenes just described, there are some elements of the movie that could scare or disturb children under the age of five. 
including the characters of Mr. Crop and Professor Poopypants, and some of the sets, like the bleak and grey school, which is often shown with flashes of thunder and lightning. Children in this age group could also be confused by the frequent transformations between Crop and Captain Underpants. Children aged 5 to 8 could be scared or disturbed by the effects of George's hypnotizing ring, which makes Crop's eyes swirl and then everything in the room starts to swirl. And also the scenes where Professor Boopypants zaps the children and their eyes go dull and glazed, including George and Harold. There is no product placement. In fact, the movie contains all imitation brands. And the only sexual reference is a mild flirtation between Krupp and a school assistant called Edith. However, there is a lot of crude humour and language. The children all laugh at Professor Poopypan's name, and there is a mention of diarrhoea. George and Harold laugh out loud at Kindy when learning about the planet Uranus, and Professor Poopypan's machine is called Thought 3. Captain Underpants, the first epic movie, is a comic animated film based on the very popular book series by Dev Pilkey. It is aimed at school-aged children, and its frequent toilet humour will probably appeal to this age group. The film's underlying message is about the grimness of a world without any fun, and that everyone needs a little fun in their lives. Because of the scenes and characters that might scare young children, it is not recommended for under fives and parental guidance is recommended for the children aged between 5 and 7. This movie could also give parents the opportunity to discuss with their children attitudes and behaviours and their real-life consequences, such as the line between pranks and bullying, is playing pranks on others really fun, or does it cause more harm than good? cause and effect between people's anger and bitterness and their loneliness. The character of Mr. Crop gives an opportunity to think about this. Is he angry because he's lonely or is he lonely because he's a mean, angry person? Captain Underpants, the first epic movie available on one of the popular streaming platforms and CMA reviewers recommend it for children aged 8 and up. Parental guidance for 5 to 7 year olds. For children under 5, best to find another movie. There is a more detailed review of this and hundreds of other movies on the CMA website. And when Patrick talks about the CMA website, that's www.childrenandmedia.org.au. You can find the Know Before You Go review service by clicking on the Movie Reviews tab. Then you can sort the list or search by title alphabetically, by age suitability, by classification or by date added. All of the reviews are prepared by people with training in child development and they cover every G and PG title released in Australian cinemas since 2002 
as well as selected M-rated movies and some pre-2002 ones that are available on streaming services. The website also has reviews of game-style apps and apps that may appeal to young children. Again, it's www.childrenandmedia.org.au. You might also like to sign up for our KBYG weekly newsletter about the latest reviews and join the CMA Facebook community. Links for both are in the show notes. More details later on how to keep in touch and give feedback. Now it's time for Zooming Out, our regular segment where we look at some of the broader social and policy issues that get thrown up by all the different ways screens come into children's lives. Liz and I are going to revisit the statement about children's rights that we covered back in episode five to find out what the international community has been doing about it. Ah, yes, episode five seems like a long time ago, but this is going to be quite an interesting discussion, I think. It's about a resolution that certain countries at the UN have drafted that builds on that uh, general comment 25 that we discussed earlier. So listen out. So what was the general comment all about? Good question, Kim. I'm very glad you asked because I needed to get clear on this again. But just for the listeners, I can explain that we've got this Convention on the Rights of the Child or the CRC. And then there is a committee that oversees the implementation of that convention in different countries. So it goes around to different countries saying, okay, what have you been doing? Here's what we think you should do and so on. But also from time to time, they make a general comment to guide all countries on a specific topic. And these have been quite important for stuff to do with the digital world and other modern things like that, because they weren't in existence at the time that the convention came into being, which was 1989. Now, they made this statement, General Comment 25, a few years ago, which was broadly covering the right of children to access the internet, which is a really important development that we're getting very clear now that there is a right to access the internet that you can't have a solution to a problem which is our oh, children just have to stay off the internet that they do have a right to access it and so it also covers the obligations of countries to make it safe for children to do so now as i mentioned this is really useful since the convention was drafted in the 80s and there's some room for interpretation as to how it would apply to technological developments since the 1980s and this statement gives us a clear path as to how the committee interprets that and that's quite authoritative what does the resolution add to all this well it adds more authorities because this is coming from nations themselves. It's not just the committee talking, it's certain nations within the UN General Assembly who are drawing up this resolution. It also fills in some more detail about what's actually expected of countries. The general comment was, as you'd expect, fairly general, and this is actually getting more detail. There's a whole 19 pages, very close typed script. There's a lot in there. Only countries, Liz? No, it's not only countries. It spends a fair bit of time talking about the role of private companies as well, which is a really, really interesting development generally in human rights law and practice in recent years that we're starting to look at just how much power private companies have and the impact that they can have on things like, you know, human dignity, freedom of expression and all of the things that we normally think of as human rights that countries are supposed to be protecting. And now we're starting to say, well, what's the role of private companies as well? And that is part of what this resolution is mm -hmm. about. 
Yeah, very important because there are a number of class actions happening with private companies now. And yeah. How they've targeted kids, for example. Yes. So yeah. what about someone's right to access the internet? I've personally always thought that it's not a given right that you have access to the internet 24 hours a day. But what about some access, you know, to yeah. access um, information, for example? Yeah. Look, I don't think... my, my context is... You don't have the rights to game all night, exactly. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. And nobody is suggesting it should be 24 hours a day. Uh, and, I mean, that's kind of interesting because I've never seen that actually discussed one way or the other in the context of all of this idea of right to access the internet. But I'm, you know, I've never, ever seen it suggested that it should be a free-for-all, but just that there needs to be some access, there needs to be an opportunity to access the beneficial elements and in tandem with that, protection from the potentially harmful elements. But anyway, this resolution reaffirms that right. And it notes that girls are disproportionately affected by the current shortages of actual hardware in a lot of countries. It talks about girls quite a lot, actually, that that's obviously something that is of concern to these countries that are drawing up the resolution. It also notes how the internet helps children to communicate with each other which is seen as very beneficial for their development and protection of their rights to advocate for themselves and also the way that it provides rest and leisure activities is part of children's rights as well. And what about protecting kids once they're on the internet? Well, that's the next step, isn't it? You say, right, there's a right to access the internet because there are all these good things and opportunities that come from it. And then the next thing is that states have a responsibility to promote and respect and protect and fulfil human rights. And to simply protect the child's well-being, that is generally seen as part of the role of the state to protect children. So parents also have a responsibility that's noted in there. And as I mentioned before, they refer to private actors and businesses and say that they have a responsibility. Now, as for that last one, which you can probably tell I'm very, very interested in, here's how they describe that responsibility. They say the responsibility to protect the rights of the child extends to private actors and businesses, which should pay particular attention to accessible design and operation of the digital environment and the safeguarding of the safety, privacy and protection of the child, including but not limited to products and services specifically designed for children or directed toward them as well as those that are not targeted at children but which may still be used by them. And I really, really love that last part because so much of what has been done through law to try to protect children in relation to media experiences, and I believe other things as well, but I know most about media, is that they focus on the things that are designed or intended for children and they ignore the fact that children access so much stuff that's not designed or intended for them. And we're seeing more and more now that bodies that are trying to draw up policy or regulation on this kind of stuff are paying attention to that fact and that they're extending their efforts, not just to stuff that's intended for children, but to stuff that will find its way into children's lives one way or another, which I think is really, really positive. And which rights do they focus on? Well, you can probably guess privacy is a really big one, um, including they refer to how unlikely it is that children can provide effective consent to the sharing and of their data and so on. There's a whole range of violence and sex related risks that people can probably figure out what they would be. 
and noting the danger of unsupervised access in relation to those so they do bring in that idea of you know, we need to supervise it there's cyberbullying gets mentioned quite a lot and then stuff relating to health including mental health and they refer to private actors particularly in the context of mental health which i think is interesting they're recognizing the fact that the companies that are providing media experiences and screen experiences can have an impact on mental health so they're on notice about that now and um, they also refer to disinformation and misinformation. So those are a few of the rights that get picked up in this document. Do you think this document will make a difference, Liz? Well, look, you know, it's definitely not a dose-response relationship. Like you get this many countries putting out this many pages about children's rights in the digital world, and then you get this much um, benefit to children further down the track. It's more complicated than that, but. I do see these documents as potentially a useful tool for advocates like me and governments who want to do something. So if you want to do something, you've got this tool, you've got this document that lays all of this stuff out. And especially when it comes to regulation of industry, again, if you're a, an advocate or an NGO that wants to be in on that, on, on that discussion, or if you're a government that wants to do something, then there's some really useful suggestions in there about what should happen and why and that's a really potentially useful thing so um let's watch this space it hasn't been passed yet to my knowledge i will check before i post the episode and just make sure and if so i'll have something in the show notes but otherwise um it's good to see that uh, general comment 25 is being acted on well that's all we have time for today Yes, that's a wrap for episode 26. We'd really love to have your feedback, so please get in touch. If you're a subscriber on Substack, you can leave a comment there. Otherwise, you can contact us through Facebook or Instagram. Just search for Outside the Screen Pod, all one word. Or you can email us at Outside the Screen Pod at gmail.com. You can also catch up on all things gaming addiction on my website, CGI Clinic, or even book an appointment for me to see your child. Or if you really like us, you can help by subscribing to the show on your listening platform and or on Substack. It's worth doing both because Substack subscribers get an email when a new episode drops or there's other news. And you can also join our listener community. Details are in the show notes along with a range of further info about the things we've been discussing. We'd also really love it if you could please spread the word about the podcast among your friends and colleagues. Finally, you can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts to make it easier for others to find us. And this, this has been, been the team, team from Outside the Screen. See you soon.